From Kemal Prescott Road, this is Stalking Art, a series about pairing and conversing with art thinkers and makers on how they ponder. On this week's episode, we have a very special pairing of our artist, Desmond Lazaro, and his incredible mentor, Ghulam Muhammad Sheikh, introduced by our director, Shireen Khan. Well, in one area, I mean, if you call art, hope is still alive. And art has become literally synonymous with hope. And that is what makes me going. And that's what makes us all going. Well, you're, you're still my teacher after all these years. <laughs> Good morning, Desmond. Good morning, Gulam. Um, I cannot tell you how much pleasure I get in seeing the two of you together. Um, you know, I was having this interesting conversation with a friend uh, earlier this morning, and we were speaking about things that came before that made other things possible. And we were just talking about legacies of artists and, and you know, quite a deep conversation about um, early modernists that, that had such an influence on what happened later. And it really brought me to think about this conversation today between Desmond and Ghulam. And uh, I, I would really love to sort of see whether we can explore that would Desmond be where he was, had the situation of Baroda, of Ghulam, of Nilima not happened, you know? Um, I mean, it's just something that, uh, you know, I love Desmond's work. What he does is so, is so deeply um, um, sort of inspiring to me as a gallerist. And I, you know, I really hold him in a very, very high esteem. Um, and I really am so thankful in so many ways to you, Ghulam, for what, um, for what you have brought in, in terms of what Desmond does. And I, and I really wonder whether the past has sort of created what came before him. So um, this is just a little introduction to how I, I, I sort of see this podcast today as a conversation between two friends, uh, between um, a mentor and, um, and a teacher that then became friends. So, so Desmond, uh, you know, you studied in England, you were brought up in Leeds, you were pretty much an English boy. Um, you know, you did your BFA there. What brought you to Baroda? What brought you to India? Uh, what, was the, what was the motivation that brought you to this hub, the MS University in Baroda in 1990? Hi, Shireen. Um, hi, Gulam. Lovely to speak to both of you, which is a, a real treat. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I came to Baroda on a Commonwealth scholarship after first completing a painting degree in England at the University of Lancashire in the north. Uh, I grew up in Leeds. My parents came from Burma, my father and my great-grandfather, um, but my great-great-grandfather was from South India, from Chennai. Um, and I'd always kind of had this fascination with, with Indian miniature painting as a student in the UK. Um, doing these very large sort of oil paintings and transcribing what I could, having very little understanding of them, but visually just completely intrigued with them, um, especially the large flat planes of colour that you tend to find in miniature. Um, I felt there was a real conversation with colour there. And at the end of my degree, I applied for a Commonwealth scholarship and was 
then duly sent to Baroda. And the, the interesting thing, the funny thing, as I was thinking about the other day, was that actually, Gulam, you were actually the first person that I'd met on my trip because I jumped on a plane, I'd landed up in Bombay, and within a day or two, I was put on a train to Baroda. And then within a day, I, I was in your office at the, at the school. And that was our first meet. And I think we've, we've been in touch pretty much ever since. Could you tell me exactly the year that you landed? I think I landed in 1990 and my classmate was um, Ramesh Kalkar and okay. there was also N.S. Hasha. I think okay. Emma Halpadia was in the first year of fine arts as well. And mm. Manisha Doshi was a, my classmate. Yeah, it was it was a really rich time, as I, as I recall. Well, you know, we have had uh, quite a few students from England, so I was not surprised, but... I always wanted to know their background. So, would you remember if I, in our first meeting, did I ask you something about what you were interested in and why did you come to Baroda? You know, I, I remember it really clearly because I remember you came into the studio and I had a, a bunch of slides in those days. You'd sort of walk around with your slides and this would be your, your calling card. There's no phones in those days. So you had this bunch of slides that we pulled out together and we went through the slides and there was a there was a large oil painting I'd done of sort of Krishna and this this bullock um, with lashings of oil paint in a very typical Frank Albach northern European kitchen sink sort of school mm -hmm. I remember he looked at me and he just said but do, do you know that there are there are actually miniatures but massive and I, and I sort of looked, she said, no, I've never seen anything like that. That the idea of a miniature is actually not a miniature. There's a whole, there's a whole vista of, of paintings which are called pitchwise. And that's when our conversations really began. And, and then you sent me up to, to Nadadwara that summer to go and look at the pitchwise in Nadadwara and see all mm -hmm. the artists in that time. Um, you'd also sent me to Amitambalal in, in, in Ahmedabad. And I went through his collection with him and just got a sense of the scale of these things, mm. which at the time were really impressive because there was nothing like that that I'd seen in the UK, for sure. Mm. We, we, I'd known the collections at the v &A and that there was a, you know, the, the whole book tradition, but the idea of something being on a larger scale was just completely alien. Strangely mm. enough, I thought, well, I'll just pick up where I left off in the UK and I'll just be in India. But obviously that, you know, life has other has other ways of teaching you lessons. And it was a case of you sort of land in this, in Baroda, and it was a completely alien environment. And I had to unlearn and mm. to learn to, to think in a very different way, in a very different language. Um, but I remember that was also very much a part of Baroda because a lot of my fellow classmates weren't from Gujarat. They were from different parts of India. They didn't speak Gujarati either. Few of them even spoke Hindi. Most of them were from, from southern mm. India. So it was alien to them as it was to me. And there was a common sort of, there was a commonality between all of us. And also um, at Baroda at that time, it was a real cosmopolitan place. We had students from within the university from Kenya, from Sudan, from Jordan, from the Middle East, from Korea. There was, um, it was really eclectic at that time. I mean, a really interesting place to be. Yes, of course, you know, we continued to have students from different parts of the world. It was actually it began way back in the 1960s when Jim Donovan, one of the first British students, came 
to study in Baroda. And after that, we have had a number of students from England, but also from other parts of the world. I was teaching artistry in my earlier phase, but while you were here, I had moved to the Department of Painting. But at the same time, I had decided that I would continue my connection with uh, artistry. And there was one subject in MA Fine Art History called History of Painting, which I continued to teach <laughs> every Monday. I used to have... Yeah, I remember Monday, Monday mornings. <laughs> and I used to love them. They were great. Somehow, with, you just sat there and you just go literally rattle off the history of art. It was just extraordinary, especially when it came to paint, miniature painting, because right. your understanding of it was, was, for me, was a real guide into that world. But that was divided into two. You know, one year I did uh, Western painting and another year I did Indian painting. So there were two years when I did that. I remember that uh, in the... European painting, I used to speak about Sienese painting, which, uh, you know, became my <laughs> great interest. Uh, and my friend Timothy Hyman was also interested in that. But when it came to Indian painting, you see, my approach was somewhat different. I was not a kind of a, what should I say? I was not a kind of a hardcore art historian. I did not go into all the details, but I tried to look at art and weave art history through art. That means looking at works, looking at paintings, and looking at variety of paintings that, that were produced in different periods of time. And that is why I was able to connect art history with the students of painting. And that was my main issue that I would like to have some kind of a connection so that it would enter their life. And they may perhaps discover something. And I would see that Somewhere, you know, in your work, I think you actually made it a, a kind of a, almost like a lifetime of practice. It was already there, but the seeds were already there and you had already tried it. But maybe it, even it needed some kind of a push or perhaps some kind of a nucleus. And I think that is how we both, perhaps in some way, I was also looking at pitchwise. So that is how it worked. I, I remember very clearly those classes and, and something that you'd said to me, which is to this day has still stayed with me. And it was about the nature of looking at painting and that the idea of a miniature painting is that it, it has very much a physical presence. And that when, when the moguls and the, the, the original courts were, were making these works, is that they had the ability to take the painting into their physical space and this is how they would enter the work. And what that does in two things. One is that there's a physical object that comes into your personal space, which is very different from a Western construct to a large extent where you look outside at a painting. It's something mm -hmm. outside your physical body and you enter it through those eyes, whereas mm -hmm. the work comes into you. And also mm -hmm. once the work is, is in front of you, literally in your hands, then because you're looking about time and space in different in, in a different context. So you might see, I remember the example you used to give us was the idea of a Kota painting. And you'd see three different versions of the same tiger. And there'd be a tiger at the top in one story, there'd be a tiger at the bottom in another story. And then, and you'd have multiple layers and multiple stories going on at the same time. And those two things really stuck with me because later on through Nilama, 
um, I went to work with Banuji in Jaipur in Rajasthan. Yes. And I think for the first couple of months, all we ever did was just look at paintings every night. And mm. I had a way of understanding how to approach that. Because obviously his, his way of teaching was not, there was no classes, nothing would set. Most of the time I'd just go and sit next to him. And then in the evenings, he'd just pull out a painting or two. And we'd just spend the evening looking at them. And you'd look at every single detail with a magnifying glass. Mm. And somehow I had a, a way of understanding how to go about that because of, because of the, what we'd learned with you. No, you see, painting in that sense, uh, as it came to me, being a painter myself, you know, to a kind of a enter into, as you have put it, and I think that is the right way of looking at it. Let me say one or two things about it. One is that every the so-called miniature or a folio picture is of the module of a hand. You know, either this much, or you put two hands together, or you put an arm. So you have something of the body in the very, very size of the image. You hold it in your hand, you know, you don't put it on the wall and it moves. And if it moves, then you can also discover number of aspects or dimensions that otherwise you had missed. Anyway, I will not go into details of all this, but we'll go further. Perhaps one can bring in a few things about the city of Baroda. Well, you see, Faculty of Fine Arts was like an island. It was not directly connected, not that we were not connected, we were connected in some way or the other, but Faculty of Fine Arts remained some kind of a, an independent entity, you know, where we did our things, what we wanted to do. We connected with other departments, we connected with other faculties whenever there was a need. And we also connected with artists, you know, who had passed out from our college or who were living in Baroda, like Bhupen was living. And so we used to get them around to speak to students, you know. So we had several programs. One of the programs was to have the visiting professor. But at the same time, I mean, since you talked about miniature painting, one of the things that we did was to visit places. And we, I remember that in my class, I used to take them to Ahmedabad, particularly because Ahmedabad had quite a number of collections of art. Ahmedabad had a large number of museums, like the Calico Museum is there and there are other museums. So in a way, this was also a, you know, all these journeys of various kinds into the painting, around the painting, about paintings, so in some ways, you know, painting would become a kind of a sole preoccupation of your life. And that is something, you know, that we were all engaged in at that point of time. Now, you said that Baroda was something like a... Well, in a way, Baroda was a melting pot. Yes, you are right, you know, that there were people from different parts of the world coming and we are all exchanging views, ideas and works. And we used to travel, so we will come back and then we will talk about what we had seen in Bombay or Delhi or elsewhere. But the best thing was that there was already a community of artists in the Faculty of Fine Arts and we all lived almost like kind of an extended family. So you knew each other. You knew literally everybody. Do you want to reflect on the time that you were in Baroda 
you know, in a social way or in any other way? Well, I think I think the first year was was quite challenging, having sort of arrived from the UK and then having to readjust to life in in, in a very different environment. Um, but there was some, like you say, gradually there, there was this kind of osmosis of people that I'd met, and as I said earlier, a lot of the, my fellow students and had arrived from different parts of India, so they were also dealing with the same sort of homelessness and how they were going to you know, reorientate themselves into that. I remember we had the studio key and we sort of passed it amongst ourselves. So classes kind of went on, but the studio was open 24-7. And yeah. we'd have like the morning shift and then we'd have the night shift and we'd work till two or three <laughs> in the morning. And that was an average day because a lot of the time it was really hot in the afternoon. There weren't many fans. So we'd, we'd work and... Um, I became very close to the um, other Commonwealth scholars. There was one called Cyril Haripal, who came from Trinidad and Tobago. He was an extraordinary individual. Um, yeah. I remember spending a lot of time with Hasha and Ramesh Kalkar, who later on we would work on the, the airport project together almost 20 years later, which is interesting. Yeah. And yeah. there was a lot of connections that are still, still there today. Yeah. And I remember also it was, a, it was an interesting time because there was no art scene. There was no art world then. There was the Kemold in, in Mumbai. I think there was probably one or two galleries in Delhi, but there's no art scene. There was no formal institutes for people to then sort of fall apart and, and take a career in art. There was none of that. And we were all in the same boat. You know, very little funds, just somehow, if somebody had money, then that was great because then, then you'd... <laughs> you'd all work for the next month and, you know, you'd, you'd pay the bill for everybody else and that's how we'd get on to the next month. And then and somebody else would sell a painting in Mumbai or wherever it was and the, the, months, the funds kind of got recycled amongst us. And there was a real sense of, well, this is it. You know, th there's no career here. So you do it because you really want to do it. Mm. And there was a freedom to do it. You know, as I say, you know, being able to work until four o'clock in the morning was a regular thing. And we loved it. I think that was really interesting. I think you put your finger on that particular aspect of the Faculty of Fine Arts, that it was a studio that remained open throughout the day and night. And I think that was the best thing that, uh, that could happen to any institution. And so I remember right from the time I was a student and in the early days when I began to teach, I remember I could go at any time and and work there you know and there not only me but there were other teachers other students were all working so in a way the community came together because there was that possibility of finding a place for yourself it's there you know and you can work and you can you know look at each other's work and get all kinds of ideas but at the same time if you go further from here i learned that you had done a book and I also came to know about your association with uh, Bannu, whom we happened to know both Nilima and I had been to his studio. And uh, that you even produced a book. It was a pleasant surprise that somebody, one of us, you know, has now actually gone and worked with Bannu and also, you know, got further into looking at works of art, you know, in Rajasthan and especially Pichwai. Pichwai Nilima was very close to. 
I do not know whether you know, but there was a workshop in Baroda in the early 84, when we had one workshop, we had about, it was, it lasted for one and a half years. And one of the workshops was about Pichwai. So we had a Pichwai painter, Vithalas came to Baroda and, but of course, you know, the great uh, Pichwai painter was not able to come. But Nilima made a point to go there and she spent time with him, Dwarkalal, for a long period of time and she actually struck a bond with him. And they both came to know each other so much. I bet that um, Nilima said that she learned a lot from Dwarkalal. But I could see that even Dwarkalal found in Nilima something very special. So when I learned about your involvement in Pichwai, all this came to me. Would you like to speak about that or about Nilima? Well, I think, I think Nilima was the inspiration because she had worked and gone to visit Banerjee. And then I remember asking her, oh, I'd, I'd like to go and visit him. And it was really kind of naive because my idea was, well, I'll, I'll just go up in the summer holidays and I'll, I'll, I'll do the miniature a couple of weeks and then I'm back. Done. It can't be that difficult. And of course, you know, 12 years later, um, I was still in Jaipur. And I remember the first day I got to, to, to Banerjee's studio and mm. his family had practiced miniature for, you know, the legend is yeah. seven generations. They're still practicing. And he looked at some of my drawings and he sort of put it to one side and said, okay, well, I'll, we'll start with drawing, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> and he took out this miniature brush and and then that that's how I saw. But I, again, it wasn't a case of we sat down and then I learned him painting from him as a kind of an, a class in a in a kind of a um, a workshop manner. No, it was a matter of you you just sat with him and looked at paintings. So I think the first month we looked at Banitani, the idea oh. of a, a kind of Indian Mona Lisa as an image, and he told me the full story of where it came from and. And then he was wonderful. He he then sent me to Sangram Singh, who was a, the collector at the time, who had a massive collection of, of paintings. And I spent, again, uh, probably a month with, with Sangram. And in those days, all the paintings were kept in these huge uh, metal chests. Mm-hmm. And one would be brought into the room, and then he'd open it, and then he'd walk away. And I would just be left there for the full day, just rummaging through this box of of hundreds of paintings and I you saw every school and then and then I'd, put, I'd pick one out and then I'd show it to Sangram and then he'd spend he'd spend the next hour telling you where it was from who painted it what that color was this dress is from this part and this is a different story that was done then and and to me that was that was you know looking back on it that was a whole university in itself and then because I sort of hung around in, in Jaipur, eventually I sort of joined the studio. Mm. You know, first of all, you make tea, then you, <laughs> then you made the color, and then eventually it was paper, and then they give you a brush, and then, you know, 10 years later, you, you end up going through this whole apprenticeship. Mm. But it was never a formal thing. It was almost like a slope, and I sort of, you jump onto it, and before you know it, you're just completely immersed in it, and 10 years has gone. And mm. you've you've been through the schools and you've learnt the techniques and you've learnt that, but it, but it's beyond technique. It was something about the idea of a shared community of artists, especially on a pitchway, because a pitchway will take you a year to make. 
and there's only one painting in the studio that's the one that you're working on and you might work on it for you know six hours a day but it's three or four artists working at the same time so suddenly you're working in a collective so the idea of being an artist in a studio in, in, a, in a very singular sense was blown away you were then part of something else mm-hmm. and you fitted in according to the quality of your hand and how much you you could do and if you start from the edge of the painting working inwards and say if it's a picture with Krishna with Srinaji in the middle you you wouldn't touch the Srinaji until you know a good five or six years you'd slowly work on the border then you'd be given a bit mm-hmm. more here and a bit more and a bit more, and a bit more responsibility until eventually you might, if you were lucky, get to the to the main sort of characters. But it was it was a long and um, and the book came about that the book was a matter of Banerjee was getting older, he was sick, and it was a, it was a case of I kind of just felt as I had to start to write down some of the stories, and 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 a lot of a lot of the artists had stopped using traditional colours. Yeah. They'd, they'd started to use more sort of more contemporary sort of means, and I wanted to somehow document what was being lost. So I spent a lot of time sort of figuring out how these colors were made. And then um, mm. it was a lot of do- just documentation of, of, a, of a, a tradition that to a large extent was kind of dying out, which mm. is not the case now. Now it's, there's been a huge revival and the, yeah. there's so much more people working in these fields. But, but then it, it was really on its last legs. And mm. it was at a, some kind of an attempt to say, well, let's, let's see what we can document here in honor of Banerjee for sure. There's something that strikes me in what you described as the big chest in which hundreds of miniatures were left. And you were left with uh, that entire chest (laughs) for yourself. Uh, It reminds me of an instance in this very well-known novel called My Name is Read by Orhan Pamuk, a Turkish writer in which he talks about a, a, a mentor, that means a Bustad, and a pupil, who for some reason are not in favor with the ruler. And they are both incarcerated, but they're incarcerated in a place, luckily, where the entire collection of painting was housed. And how the two of them discover an, a whole world while being kind of a in a kind of a jail of thought. And it's a fantastic chapter in which he writes about all the qualities of, in that case, it is Iranian painting, that Persian painting. But I I got suddenly reminded of that kind of a magical event <laughs> that seemed to have happened in your case, that you had all these things in your hands. And then with working with Bannu in person, that means I think what you learned from him is something make you to discover yourself even some in a way yes i mean i think he he was he was a massive man absolutely there are such people about whom very little is written about you know not many people even know about who Banu was you may have some references in kerry welch's book or uh, patnaik's uh, write-up but otherwise very little is being written about but anyway these are very seminal you know, something like, uh, you know, they are, they are like nuclei. They, they were the nucleus in many ways for us to enter into the world of, you know, that kind of painting that they were associated with. But anyway, let's go a little further. That After that, I think there were, you went back and then you 
you once told me about uh, some kind of a revival of uh, traditional practice of paper making marbling and other things prince charles had perhaps uh, started some kind of a you are remembered right or am i wrong yeah yeah no no this so after i mean after many years in jaipur i then sort of you know moved back to england and there was a a period of about 5 or 6 years i was i was floating between the two and mm-hmm. when i went back to the uk there was a school set up by an amazing man called keith critchlow the jobbeter and he was formerly at the royal college and then he set up as a school under the prince of wales's umbrella and mm-hmm. it was called the prince's school of traditional arts and mm-hmm. its original title was visual islamic and traditional arts and mm-hmm. i just remember having all this kind of information about pitchway and miniature and and it, it kind of didn't have a context within the contemporary art practice at the time mm-hmm. um and so i turned to keith and he said well why don't you come and come and do a phd with us and write about it and that that eventually became the book and what was interesting about the school is that it was kind of operating it was flowing in the, the opposite direction to contemporary practice at the time and the the whole school was based on an idea that they would get traditional practitioners to come in and we'd mm-hmm. do these sort of workshops with them whether it be miniature painting or whether it be uh, japanese uh paper making or calligraphy or um geometry um and it was a kind of a it's a place where you you got to look at the core of traditional arts around the world which is geometry spacing um uh, and then you were able to then enter your own particular field and it they would find a context and that was the most interesting about the school it allowed you to enter these different traditions but find the core that touched them all whether it was buddhist painting mm-hmm. japanese painting indian painting islamic whichever and and understand the language that's that underlies many of these like you would do the geometry of a painting it's the same sort of idea and it allowed me to put the whole experience of india and of pitchwine of banerjee into some kind of context and to mm-hmm. see it within an international framework within a a global mm-hmm. framework rather than when it rather than a local and a particular one um and then taking that later on after finishing that sort of experience um i then started to look at the world around me i mean by then i was married i um we had our first child and i remember emil my eldest wouldn't sleep for the first 3 years so we'd literally spend nights up you know just you know in the dark watching him sleep because he didn't want to leave the room and and in absolute boredom that you find as being a parent in these situations of trying to stay awake um i remember just picking up one of his toy ambassadors and i sort of held it up to the sort of night light and i thought that that's kind of interesting what would happen if you if you painted that as a miniature and then mm-hmm. i thought well can you paint other things as a miniature what what would happen if you blew that up to the scale of a miniature museum size is is that possible it can could you do that and another i sort of thought well okay let's have a go and then i'd left jaipur by then i was living in delhi i'd got married and thought well and i needed to leave jaipur to be able to do that because i think sometimes mm. you're so immersed in a life because because mm. the whole experience of rajasthan was not about learning painting it was a life system yeah. you entered into a way of living and a way of being and then you kind of have to wrench yourself away from it in order to find anything else and that's when i began this whole sort of contemporary journey and literally within a couple of years or a year of that i met shireen and i showed her these sort of early images of ambassadors and scooters and all this stuff and 
And mm. she said, okay, let, let's see if we can do some work together. And that's where this whole the world, back, the, the journey back into contemporary practice really began. Mm. Uh, there's some exhibition that you talked about, about what was it that Chaitanya organized in Australia? Or did the ten artists or well, rem what? Remember, there was a thing that we did. It was in Jaipur, and this was maybe 10 years later now. This is 2011. And Chaitanya, who was at the head of uh, the art school in Canberra in Australia, had organized a 10 artists from Australia and 10 artists from India to do, it was called the Indian, the Australian Indian Institute. And remember, we did the workshops together with Nilama and Mitu and Gigi and John Katapan and um, Hosan Valameshi was there. I remember, and, and what was lovely about it is that we all met for 10 days and every morning we'd present our work, but you mm. presented it to a series of colleagues <laughs> who were familiar or were not familiar with your work. And it was brilliant. It was just an amazing exchange because it was really genuine. And to this day, we've all pretty much stayed in touch. Well, a similar experiment was done and 10 Indian and 10 Chinese artists uh, were selected by Chaitanya and Johnson Chan to have an exhibition in China. Yeah. But that brings me to the point of Dunhuang. Now, you remember the... Yes. We visited uh, this absolutely amazing and fantastic experience of being in the desert and finding those incredible paintings there. Would you like to talk about it? Oh, well, I mean, oh, God, we, we have to have a whole podcast on Don Juan. That'd be a separate <laughs> thing because we both are complete Don Juan heads. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough with the school. We were invited as a part of a research team looking at conservation mm. um, about six or seven years ago. Mm. And we've been working with the Don Juan Research Academy. And what they've done, which is really interesting. So Don Juan is, it's on the edge of the Taklaban Desert. It's a series of 150 caves, which are the earliest Buddhist cave site in China that we know of. And for over a thousand years, these were pretty much lost to the desert because of the climate. Most mm. of the openings to the caves were covered over. And when they were rediscovered by Oriel Steen in 1908, um, the, the caves were in impeccable condition. And, and sadly, not like we have here in India in, in Ajanta, where they've succumbed to light failures and all sorts of problems. But in, in Don Juan, a lot of the rooms are perfectly preserved. Yeah. And so we were invited with the school in London, again, the Prince's School, to do a research project with the Don Juan Academy. And what I think they'd done, which was really interesting, is that they'd set up two departments. One was a conservation department and the other one was a painting department because they suddenly realized that they 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 needed to figure out how these things were painted so mm. they they employed 30 artists full-time to mm. basically reproduce every yeah. single aspect of the work mm. and then they built a museum and they reproduced 10 caves and, mm. and it's an exact copy. I mean, it, it's it's uncanny how they've managed to do this yeah, and yeah. so we work with the with these artists Mm. Um, over the last, and I've been to Dunhuang oh, several times now and spent a lot of time in China on this research project. Because I, my, my favorite sort of story there is the work of the, the monk, Zhuang Zhang, 
there's mm. an extraordinary um, um, monk who traveled from China to India. And eventually, it took him 14 years. He went to Nalanda and he studied with a, with a Buddhist teacher there. And he basically brought back the Diamond Sutra. Mm. And one of the earliest images you'll find in Don Juan is of him um, almost like five or six centuries before the journey to the uh, journey to the West, which is extraordinary, uh, book, mm. um, predating maybe by 500 years. And I was totally fascinated by this this place. These are just magnificent, magnificent paintings, which which I would advise anybody to go. It's it's really quite an extraordinary place. I'll tell you a personal story. If it is Yuan Chang that you are talking about, I'm saying we have different pronunciation. You have perhaps a proper Chinese pronunciation, whereas what I have learned is from <laughs> my studies in English, so it was you <laughs> and Sun. So after that project, you know, or during that project of 10, 10 Chinese and 10 Indians have made a painting, large painting, in which I wanted to bring in China. Among other things, what do I do? I said, and I realized, actually I had learned, I had known that MS University of Baroda had conducted research on a particular Buddhist site in Gujarat and where in the one of the Chaityas, you know, they found the urn containing the ashes of Buddha. So that wow. urn was brought to the Department of Archaeology and it, it, it's there for the whole world or entire Buddhist world to come in, you know, revere. So I thought that I would include in that painting of mine, you know, which was a painting about Baroda and other things. I brought Yuan Sang coming to Baroda. <laughs> I painted the oh. image of Yuan Sang, you know, with his backpack of sort. And that, yeah. so why, why Yuan Sang in Baroda? Because there is that urn, it contains the ashes of Buddha. But anyway, there are always some stories of this and that kind. Is there anything that you want to talk about your own work that after that, in which direction that it moved? You know, the funny thing is, I think it had a, a profound effect. And it, there was, it, again, it comes down to um, in one of the caves, there was um, a thing called the library cave that was discovered again about 1910. And this cave had been sort of blocked up for hundreds of years and by some reason they happened to break the wall and they they found over 40,000 scrolls oh. many of which to this day have not been actually um, looked at but one of them was the the first ever copy a printed copy of the diamond sutra which became a major text for chinese buddhism but also there was a thing called the dunhuan star atlas and if you imagine a 14 feet scroll um, almost like a foot and a half wide. Mm. And on one side, it, it divides into two parts. And on one side, there's drawings of cloud divination. Mm -hmm. You know, different forms of clouds, the different colors that they're given to them. And then on the other side, are these really small drawings of star constellations. Oh. And I was fascinated by this thing because there's a copy actually in the Dunhuang Museum. And... I began to look at the actual document is now in the British Museum. And in 2014, uh, mm. a team of um, French, 
um, astronomers that analyzed the actual hand drawings and found out that even though these drawings were done something around the region of the 7th century, they were like 90% accurate of actual star constellations. And this is you know, hundreds of years before the advent of a telescope. It's extraordinary. Um, and what I found really fascinating is that within, within one document, you had cloud divination, and then you had observational astronomy and, and constellations in one document. Mm. It was as if the, the pre-empirical world and the empirical world were just seen as one. Mm-hmm. And it must have been a very particular time in history to, to find these, these avenues of knowledge to coexist. And when I moved to Australia, uh, I was given a commission by the Art Gallery of New, Australia, Art Gallery of New South Wales, and it was called um, The Sea of Untold Stories, and it charted the migration stories that were happening in Europe at the time as people were, were fleeing through the Mediterranean. And in the sky, I'd used a lot of the imagery from Don Juan, from the actual star atlases themselves. And which kind of brings us up to date now with this current exhibition, the Campbell Cosmos. And I think this whole investigation was kicked off in Don Juan and has been unraveling in work ever since. Well, I didn't go to Don Juan, but I was always fascinated by some kind of maps. And I wanted to make maps. Uh, let me tell you my story in short. I was looking for a world map, and world map, pre-modern world map, and I found this image, a little picture postcard from British British Library bookshop. And I was quite fascinated. I said, what's it? In it? Discovered there is made in 13th century. World map was made in 13th century in Europe. And this was a kind of a reproduction of the actual map, which was 13 feet wide. And it was on parchment and it was in displayed in a church in Hamburg. But the church was destroyed during Allied bombing in the Second World War. And the map also went with it. So I had a little picture postcard. I thought it's all the more reason for me to recreate it <laughs> because it's been destroyed. <laughs> Why not to do it? I made it and I made a series of maps and I got an invitation from Australian tapestry workshop and they said, do you want to make a tapestry out of my work? So I sent them several pictures, including one one of these maps called Mapa Mundi. They chose that to make it a tapestry. Well, they made it in my absence. I went there once just to see it, but they made it in my absence when it was done, finished. They said, why don't you come? But I was in California at that point of time and I couldn't come. So I said, please send me photos. They sent me photos and dimensions and everything. Now, would you believe that tapestry was exactly 13 feet, about 13 feet, the same size that the original map. Oh, my God, it was unnerving. I thought, how can this happen? But there are such things, such stories do take place. Now tell me more about, I saw your catalog of the cosmos. There are a number of aspects of it, but I, I mean, there are a few things which I cannot fathom because it's not an area which I have ventured into. But uh, there was something which attracted me because it is through visual means that you are trying to fathom all the kind of whatever, whether you call them secrets, whether you call them 
surprises, whether you call them some riddles or whatever it is. If you could talk a little about that and about your work in general as to how you have come to at this point of time and which you are now going to show in Cambodia. Well, I, th I think when, I mean, there's, there's one, one part of this story, which is that I lost my mom after oh. I'd moved to Australia uh, two and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, this, it, 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 she was a cancer patient. I remember sitting in hospital with her one day. She was, my, mom, my parents are staunch sort of Catholics, Roman Catholics. And I remember sort of sitting with her. I remember in, there was a show that I did in 2016 where I'd made a film about her. So she was always popping up in work. And so we always had this idea, I'd always keep a camera nearby and, we'd, and I'd just shoot something. We'd just sit there chatting away and something would come out of it. And this time we were in the hospital and I said to her, well, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen when, when the time comes? You know, in a very casual way. And she just looks at me and instead of sort of, you know, the proverbial, well, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven and whatever, yada, yada. She, she just looks and went, nope. I'm, I'm, I'm going up there and that's mm -hmm. it. I'm done. End of story. And then, and then when she passed away, it kind of made sense. There was something about this grief and loss. And I wanted to understand what that meant. And the only way I could, I could enter that was to look to the heavens. And I thought, well, if you look to the heavens, we don't really know anything about it. I mean, not the stars up there, but what is that star? And I can get an app and I can look at it. But what is out there? What is what does that mean? And then, when you enter that whole space, you know, internally as well as externally, you you then have to figure out your relationship to it. I mean, what is your relation? And and in some ways, you know, we're we're living in a period where the idea of cos cosmos cosmology, um, th there's no one understanding our culture is fractured mm -hmm. so everybody's kind of left to figure out their own sense of cosmology i think in in previous times there, there was a there was a general view there was a multiplex view but there it was in certain frameworks nowadays those frameworks don't exist they you're kind of left to figure out your own cosmology and i think whenever you begin to ponder at the stars you kind of have to figure out your relationship to it and i think that that was the basis of this this whole investigation Mm -hmm. Again, like yourself, going back to early maps and cosmological diagrams from the 15th century. And I'd done a lot of work previously about mapping on a global scale the, mm -hmm. the, the, the journeys of Vasco da Gama or Christo, Christopher Columbus as a part of previous works. Mm -hmm. And then it just seemed natural. Well, if you're going to go across the earth, let's go across the heavens. And the, the, the connection was the Dimaxian map by um, uh, that whole series where we represent the idea, Book Minister Fuller, who was actually one of the teachers of Keith Critchlow at the school. Oh, yeah. He'd done a thing back in the 60s called the Dimaxian map, where he'd, he'd shown the actual, the true sizes of each particular continent in relation to each other. So it wasn't sort of Mercator-centric. The earth was slightly bulged out and stretched. It was much more realistic sense. But then, but Mr. Fuller talks about the idea that if you're in space, well, there is no up and down. There is no north and south. Australia is at the top, not at the bottom. There's, it, it can come in multiple ways. And I began to think, well, how do we map if you don't know where your center is? Mm 
Mm. Where is up? Where is down? Where, where, how do you enter that space? If, if, if space is limitless, then what does that mean to you? Mm. And I think it was sort of grappling with a very modern sort of concept of what is cosmology today and how do we create our own cosmologies? What is fascinating is that, you know, these are very large issues. If you were to think that the world map, you want to have the entire world. How do you, how do you imagine the whole mm. world? And then you are thinking of cosmos, which means the universe. That means even this world on which we, are, we live, like terra firma, you have the entire universe in front of you. <laughs> but what is fascinating is that it is all that we can do with our two little hands and with our whatever little mind that we have, that we put it together and we bring it in our midst. That we can create that thing. We can go on creating it. No, that is something. That's why I've always felt that if there is anything in the world today, because you see, the world is full of violence. The world is full of war and strife. And you can imagine the kind of pain that the migrants all over the world are facing. You can, you know, I don't have to go into details about them. But there is one... And then all our discourses seem to have failed us. I don't know, in whichever way. Look at politics and you find that, oh, there is this and there is that and other things. But there's one area, I mean, if you call art, hope is still alive. And art has become literally synonymous with hope. And that is what makes me going. And that's what makes us all going. So in some ways you... I don't see you coming from, you know, wherever you came from. You went to different places, you saw this, you went to Bannu, you saw Pichwai, you did it. And then eventually, you went. it's not that. There is a still world beyond. Art, art, if it is synonymous with hope, will open many more doors, many more dimensions. And I can see that all of us, are still looking forward to it. Well, you're, you're, you're still my teacher after all these years. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. And, I'm and not I love saying, that aspect. I'm a friend of you. No, I'm a co-traveler. No, no, I'm a co-traveler. Oh, well, that, that's very kind. But no, but I, I think that there is, there is wisdom and, and I'm very blessed and lucky to be a part of that. But I, but I completely agree. I think there, there is an eternal optimism in the, the process of making. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we are transformed by the things that we make. Mm. There is an alchemical process to the whole exactly. idea. Um, and, I, and I think that's, it's a one place we can take solace. Mm. Absolutely. But both the world of idea, as well as the world that exists in, the, in, the, in, in whatever forms that we make, in painting and in a way that is what our I would not say it is our destiny it is something which we have chosen and we have chosen and we will make it our destiny so that you know it becomes you know mm. more and more a world of wonder more and more a world of love and life and everything that would come there. so all best my dear to see you and to talk to you, give my regards and love to your family. And if you ever come again, 
do make a point to visit baroda and be our guest oh that's very kind love to you both thank you bye 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 bye, bye.